Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran is the best-selling account of one of the most monstrous crimes in American history. In the 1920s, members of the oil-rich Osage Nation in Oklahoma were the wealthiest people per capita in the world. But when they began to die under mysterious circumstances, an undercover FBI team infiltrated the region and together with the Osage exposed a chilling conspiracy. Soon to be a major motion picture, Killers of the Flower Moon is available now from Anchor Books. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom and this episode we're welcoming back in our friend Andy from the History of Africa podcast. I believe this is his third visit to the Garden. Uh, previous episodes have involved the Berbers um, and there was an episode sort of on uh, sort of tales from around Africa, not, not even really tales, uh, went over linguistics and, and population groups and some myths and legends and things like that. So you may want to check out those shows and you should certainly check out his show. Again, it's called the History of Africa podcast. I believe he's in season three or season four now. Um, and uh, obviously no one can sell a show better than he can, but I'll tell you that he takes a region or a place, and, and and that's mostly what the season is devoted to. Uh, a season on the Oxamites, there was a season on a Western African uh, empire, uh, where now into uh, Madagascar. So I keep wanting to say Mozambique, which is a different thing entirely. Um, so anyway, without further ado, Andy, how are you? Thanks for being on again. 
Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Um, yes, getting into Madagascar. Mozambique is a different place, though. The two are uh, actually quite close together. Mozambique is the uh, closest part of mainland Africa to Madagascar, so I guess you weren't too far off geographically. Yeah, uh, with that sort of inclination. But one's an island, and the other's part of the mainland. But yeah, no. But thank you for the save there, or or the mitigation. Um, so today, you know, you know, I sort of do this thing with Andy where. I try not to copy too much from his shows, although the first episode he did with me was ba- basically, uh, you know, sort of some hot topics from like the first two or three episodes he did uh, that I found very interesting. I thought would be interesting there and and, and, and to share. So, uh, you know, but Africa's a big continent with a rich storied history uh, and there have been groups that, you know, ha- have these names and we don't know what they are. So that's why I said, who are the Berbers? So then this one, uh, we're going to focus at least the first part of the show on who were the Moors or who are the Moors. Um, my introduction to the Moors was from the Charlton Heston movie, El Cid, um, where he was a Spanish hero, a knight, uh, in the Christian fighting off the invading Moors. Uh, I then remember in 30 Rock that uh, the Tracy Jordan character said that he knows that a buffoon is an insult. He's for a black pirate, and black Moors is just a, is just a, from the Moors. They were they were black, not Arabic or Semitic. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Um, and then I'm like, well, I do know someone who knows a lot about Africa and, and how to research. And, and there's Andy. And then he posted something on Twitter, and I'm like, hey man, that's my jurisdiction because he posted something about a legend in Madagascar where at some point. Uh, they, the Madagascar in the, in their origin myth or in their early, uh, civilization myth is that they were ruled by, uh, a, a race of dwarfish or gnome-like de- demonic, uh, overlords. And, and, you know, that, that's firmly my jurisdiction. And he said, huh, now I think about it, that's something I should talk about in your show. I'm like, yeah. So that'll be the second half, and that's probably the most talking you're going to hear from me on the show. I know cheers everywhere. So, Andy, just you know, take it away. You're you're in charge. So, uh, yes, that is. Uh, I was when you responded to me on Twitter about the Fasimba and uh, th- that being the gnome-like people in of Malagasy legend. Um, I <laughs> it did seem like something more of what you discuss on the Garden of Doom because uh, at least from our first two. Uh, encounters together on this show, uh, it seems like an overarching trend is that uh, you will bring up a topic about, and we'll like have a really good discussion, then you'll close it with like, but were there aliens involved? Yes. I'll go like, of course. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's basically it. I'm surprised that one of your references to the Moors was not uh, uh, on Seinfeld, where uh, they say the moose. Oh my God. Yeah, I definitely had that. And then different Moors from American Werewolf in, in London were saying, beware the Moors, which is an entirely different concept altogether, I suppose, though I think the word, I mean, I, I, I think it's the root, same as Morocco and Mauritania. I, I guess it means, I guess Latin or something, it means black. Uh, well, it, it's, there's a complicated etymology to it. So yes, Morocco and Mauritania are both linked to the Latin etymology of the term Moor, which is, uh, I, I don't, <laughs> my Latin kind of sucks. Uh, my Spanish <laughs> is pretty good, but my Latin is horrible. Um, and so I'm going to try to pronounce this line like Mari. I'm not, I'm not a classics guy, so sometimes 
people will uh I linguistic struggles are a constant of mine, but yes, uh Me too. Mari is sort of how I would try to pronounce the Latin there. Um I'm sure someone who took like a lot more Latin than I ever took, which is zero, <laughs> is snickering at me, but yeah, uh, which is a term that the Romans used generally for people in North Africa. So, more is a bit of a difficult term to define because it's a, what is called an exonym. And that it is a name that is not given by the people themselves, but is instead bestowed upon them to outsiders, right? Interesting. So, uh, a good example of this is, uh, trying to think of one. Uh, there's, there's a ton of examples throughout Na- history. Native Americans. Uh, yeah. Calling Native, Native Americans Indians, right? Or, or Native Americans. They, they didn't name the continent America. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that is, that is another example. Native American being a term that is, it's not of that origin, right? It was bestowed upon them by outsiders. So there's Eskimo. a few examples of that within specific Native American tribes. So like, I think Iroquois. Yep. Is a exonym. Yeah. Um, Eskimo. The other, mm-hmm. Eskimo is also an exonym. Yes. Uh, and more is also an exonym, which is why it's a bit difficult to answer the question of who are the Moors. Um, so the exact etymology of where the Romans got it from is also uh, kind of complex and difficult. More is, how can I put this? It's a term that can basically mean very many things depending on context, depending on which language it's being said in, depending on uh, the context of who says it, what it's being used for, um, and what it is prefaced by. Right. Um, Which is why there's so much confusion about it, understandably. Um, And to add to it, it's kind of an outdated term. I don't think it's considered an offensive term, not to my knowledge at least, uh, but it's generally sort of antiquated because of how vague it is. So you don't really, whenever you hear the word more, uh, you kind of hear it in a sort of medieval tone, right? People usually associate the term more, besides Seinfeld jokes, with uh, Shakespeare, particularly Othello and to a lesser extent the Merchant of Venice uh, feature Moorishness as a major plot element, especially Othello. Right. I think also retroactively, people have called Hannibal and Carthage Moors, but they were called Carthaginians. Yeah, that that is not a a term that they would have used for themselves. Um, So more, the exact etymology of the Latin term is debated. There is some pretty compelling there's a pretty compelling notion that it means someone with a darker complexion. Though what exactly that means is a, an interesting question itself. Like, uh, you know, dark compared to who? Darker compared to the Romans? Um, well, if a Roman person looks at someone and calls them darker complexion, does that mean that they would be considered a darker complexion to us? You know, uh, does it dark compared to Swedes? Dark compared to North Africans? Dark compared to who? Right, right if so, it's compared to me, that would be everybody. Exactly, right? <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> so given that the Rome has a Roman origin, or that the term has Roman origin, uh, we would assume that they are probably referring to these people as being darker than themselves. Um, and I think it's a bit strange that people will sometimes take that to mean that all Moors were necessarily uh, 
black in the modern sense of the term. Because that's another thing that needs to be brought up, is that the idea of being black is also an exonym. It is also a term that comes from outside. Uh, African cultures prior to contact and uh, the development of relationships with outsiders did not think of themselves as being black, right? Um, because that's not... Uh, Excuse me. You know, uh, <laughs> if you grow up surrounded by people with the exact same skin tone that you do, you don't think of yourself as being black or white or whatever. You just think of yourself as being skin colored, right? Sure. Like, what do you call Chinese food in China? Food. Uh, exactly. Right. So this... Uh, it, it brings up an interesting thing involving skin tone itself, which is that uh, due to the legacy of colonialism and racialism, which racialism, if you're not aware, is not the exact same thing as racism, but they often overlap, where racialism is just the belief that there are different biologically inclined human races, right? So a racialist would say that there are black people and there are white people and they are different races of human, that they uh, are biologically distinct, right? Uh, and that was a very, very dominant mode of thought uh, in early modern and modern Europe, uh, was the idea that there were different races of humans. People would engage in all sorts of pseudoscientific experiments and, uh, you know, measuring skulls and the like, and to try to prove the idea of multiple human races. In fact, some went so far to claim that uh, blacks, whites, Asians, all sorts, uh, American Indians, that they all... Uh, <laughs> had a separate origin. This was a very common theory called uh, uh, plural genesis, um, which was the idea that human beings uh, originated or were either, depending on who would argue, uh, they, that they either were created or evolved separately. So poly, I don't know why I said plural genesis, polygenesists uh, would say that uh, Black, this was a very common idea, by the way, that I cannot emphasize. This was at one point considered a mainstream thought in European academia, that black people evolved from gorillas and white people evolved from chimpanzees and Asian people evolved from orangutans. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that is what racialism is. And racialism still has a huge impact in how we talk today because it was so dominant. And it has such a big impact that it can feel like it's something that's always been present in human history, right? This idea that there are different races of humans with the primary, not the only, but the primary differentiating factor being skin tone, right? And then which alien interbred with our women, right? <laughs> so, something along those lines. Okay. Uh, uh, I had to get it in. Some more modern racialist revivalists will try to say that it has to do with which hominids your ancestors interbred with, but that's another can of worms of weird pseudoscience. But regardless, there's that that is a an idea which still permeates society, right? It, I mean, just the way that we've had this conversation so far, where we talk in terms of black people and white people and Asian people, right? Um, that idea still permeates the way that people discuss humanity in their right. everyday life, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone comes up to you on the street and asks, what race are you? You're probably not going to be like, well, race is a modern construct of the colonial period, so that's kind of a difficult... No, you're probably just going to say white, black, Asian. Uh, in the U.S. as well, sort of a good example of how 
this thing is social constructed. Hispanic is often considered a race, which is strange because it is not viewed that way really anywhere else in the world. Uh, in Latin America, there are people who would be called white, who call themselves Hispanic. There are people who would be called black, who would be called Asian, who would be called Native American, who uh, identify with the term Hispanic because it's more of a cultural label and a linguistic label. Yes. But that's a good example of how race is a sort of socially constructed thing, where this idea of a Hispanic race in the U.S. comes in. And it's the same thing with when we study the past, is that because of the influence of racialism, people will often pro project modern racialist ideas into the past. Maybe the best known example of this is the debate about ancient Egyptian race, right? Where, where people will try to say, because we, like modern people, have grown up in a world where racialism is still a prevalent ideology, uh, even if not many people still advocate for it directly, but it still influences our thought, where people will try to say that this group belonged to this race. They will try right. to say Egyptians belong to the black race, or they belong to the white race, or right. they belong to a separate Middle Eastern race, which some people would argue is not even in existence, and that, that Middle Easterners are actually white people, or Middle Easterners are actually black people, or actually Asians. And it it's a... I want to clarify that this is all fake. It's all arbitrary classification. Um, and when you get into the genetics of it, that's where that really is proven. And that uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. I don't know if I've talked about it with you, that there's more genetic diversity within not only Africa than the rest of the world, but within like East Africa than the rest of the world, that there's more genetic diversity within East Africa than the rest of the world combined. Right. So you can take someone from the Congo and there is a pretty good chance that they would have more in common genetically with someone from Scotland and someone from Japan than they might with someone from southern Ethiopia. Right? It's it's totally possible that someone from one side of Ethiopia could have more in common genetically with someone from Greenland and someone from Thailand than with someone from another part of Ethiopia. Right, so this idea that we can group people into these easily understood, uh, objective, biological races is total fallacy. Yeah, and well, I say that because people will try to do that with the term Moor. Okay. They'll try to say, Moors are black, Moors are white, Moors are Middle Eastern. And when you're examining humanity uh, in a cultural context, and a historical context you can't necessarily approach it from a lens which views our modern racialist perspective as being objective, right? Right. And, uh, and usually when there's an army, you know, it's usually comprised of people of lots of different tones, hues, uh, nationalities. Uh, they weren't exactly nation states then, but uh, maybe they were. I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I mean... You know, Rome had legions, you know, made up of, of folks from, you know, all of the different territories. So, um, yes, you know, I mean, Egypt is a good example of that. When yeah. you look at depictions of people who are Egyptian, um, even within the same era, uh, you can see people with darker skin, lighter skin, skin in the middle. Uh, and even within Egypt today, you can see that, that uh, Egyptian people come in many different hues. If you Google what people from Aswan look like versus what people from Alexandria look like, typically. There are people with all sorts of skin tones. So trying to say that this group is like that, it's a bit like if someone asked you, hey, what color is an American? Right? Yeah, right. 
Red, white, and blue. Yeah, red, white, and blue, and uh, the color of Budweiser, right? So that's <laughs> the taste that, of Budweiser. That's, that's the answer there. And in yeah. the case of the Moors, it's even further complicated because Moor is not a real designation. There was no group of people walking around going, yeah, we're Moors, right? <laughs> that's who I am. I'm a Moor. It was only a term which existed in the context of people pointing at somebody else and saying, that person is a Moor. Gotcha. Sort of of like the Saracens, right? Yes, Saracen is another really good example of uh, an exonym. Um, Chinese as well um, is a term which is an exonym, though that one has kind of been uh, adopted. In a sense, to my knowledge, I don't know. A, a friend, I had a long conversation with a friend of mine from China about this a couple of years ago. But that's the uh, that's the interesting thing about it is that the way that the fact that it's an exonym has us view the Moors because <laughs> whenever you see the term Moor written in a in a book or manuscript, you can guarantee that that's not written by someone who is called a Moor, right? Right. And so. That's part of why it's so hard to determine who the Moors actually are, is because it's a term that only exists from an outsider's perspective. Yet we shall right? try. Yep. So when let's look at these outsider perspectives then. So Moor, as it entered into the English language, did not enter directly from Latin. Instead, it entered through a combination of diffusion from the Spanish word moro and a French rendition of more that I can't pronounce because it's French, so I'm not even going to bother. Okay. Um, but moro is an interesting term because that is where the concept of more largely... At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Free technical training programs move Amazon employees into higher paying jobs in robotics and software engineering. The program took nine months. And after the nine months, my salary has increased 200%. It changed everything for my family. Benefits on day one and free training help full-time and part-time employees learn and earn more. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Entered the mindset of medieval Christians, right? And I say Christians instead of Europeans because the idea of Europe existing as a distinct continent wasn't really well known at the time. What was a better, more popular idea was to think of the world as being divided into uh, Christendom and uh, the land of the Saracens, as the Christians would have seen it, or the Dar al Islam, and then the land of the Franks as the Muslims would have seen it. So, either way you look at it, um, it's you sort of have to look at this from outside of the modern racial paradigm. Right. The, and when you, when the, you try to do that, you realize that more is a term which makes very little sense in that context, but actually makes a lot of sense when you look at it through the paradigm of the religious paradigm that dominated Christendom at the time. That viewed people primarily and judged people primarily not based off of their skin tone but off of their religious affiliation so more is a term which was almost exclusively used to refer to muslims okay um at least initially 
Um, you can see in later eras, uh, so one of my sources that I read for this, uh, just to refresh my memory, was a Blackface Maligned Race, The Representation of Blacks in English Drama by Anthony Gerard Barthel... Bartholomew, I'm not good with pronunciation. Bartholomew. I'm going to say Bartholomew. I'm sorry, Anthony, if you're listening to this. <laughs> you did a really good job with this book. Um, but yeah, it talks about how within Shakespeare in the context of English language more generally, more gradually moved on from being a term to refer to Muslims and more just a re- term to refer to exotic peoples. Just anyone who was seen as foreign and unusual was a more. Um, but to go back before that... Um, the main context in which Moore enters the Christian idea is as a consequence of the conquest of Spain and Portugal by the Muslim Umayyad Caliphate, or Umayyad Khalifat. So the Umayyad Khalifat uh, conquers Spain, and that idea of Moorishness thus enters the Christian mindset of that the Moors are these people who came from Africa and took over Spain, right? And in artistic depictions of Moors, because remember, there are no depictions of Moors that are actually made by North Africans. They come from Christians, right? In depictions of Moors, they are physically depicted in any number of ways. You see Moors with skin that is uh, black by today's standards, right? Of course, very few people actually literally have black skin, but like that's just a term that we use to describe uh, anyone of African heritage these days. And the people displayed here are very clearly from sub-Saharan Africa, right? Mm-hmm. And you also have Moors who are depicted as having white skin. And of course, similarly, very few people are actually truly like white. You know, they have a sort of pinkish tone, right? Right. Um, and of course, you see plenty of people in between, who have a sort of, you know, dusty rose and sienna type skin tone, right? Mm-hmm. Who have a skin tone that is sort of a darker brown, but not as dark brown as the other Moors in the picture. You know, you have people whose skin tone is uh, almost a, a perfect emulation of DreamWorks as the Prince of Egypt and their characters, right? That sort of like coffee brown. You see all sorts of different colors, right? Right. It's like that. Uh... The, the Twitter thing where wh- what kind of, what does your cup of coffee look like? Exactly. More in the sense is kind of a term like coffee and that it doesn't necessarily describe color. Right. So people will often try to claim that Moors are this or no, Moors are that when it comes to skin tone. Uh, it's become a common talking point among Afrocentrists to try to claim that Moors are uh, black because they use that modern racial parlance where they say Moors are black, right? As in to say they are dark-skinned people from sub-Saharan Africa. This idea is not entirely wrong. There certainly were people who were described as Moors by Europeans who would be considered black by today's standards. You also have people who counter and say, no, Moor is a term used to describe North Africans, So they should be lighter in skin tone. And similarly, they're not wrong. There were people described as Moors who had lighter skin tone. So this whole idea of trying to apply modern racial paradigms to the Moors is really difficult to do on multiple levels. Um, And of course, that idea has become 
further, uh, it has become further uh, integrated into the Western cultural lens because of Shakespeare. And so it's kind of impossible to discuss Moors without Shakespeare. And you can sort of see this disagreement over the color of Moorish people, even within renditions of Shakespeare. In the English world, Othello and renditions of Othello are typically, they typically depict him as being very dark-skinned, right? Uh, in the past, that was usually done by actors in blackface. Uh, these days, it's typically done by black actors. Right. Um, and so that is an example of how... Uh, what the, uh, yes, so that is an example of how the British viewed Moors and how that idea of the Moors being darker-skinned people occurred there. Um, in other European plays involving Moors, including other Shakespeare plays, the depiction is a bit more varied. Um, in The Merchant of Venice, uh, there is a strange depiction in... Uh, the Shakespeare's stage direction, where Shakespeare occasionally gives stage directions, apparently. Um, I don't know much about Shakespeare outside of his depiction of Moorish people, because that's the main stuff I've read about him, to be honest. English literature is not my strength. But that is uh, his, what he demands for the stage direction, specifying the actor's costume, is he demands a, quote-unquote, a tawny Moor. All in white. And tawny is a bit of a, uh, uh, a a term that isn't really used much anymore, but it, it sort of means like a tan color. Yeah, is like, how I describe it. Like leather khaki kind of color. Yeah. So a khaki. That's a good way of putting it, right? Um, and the interesting thing about it is that both Othello and The Merchant of Venice take a similar. Uh, use their, their Moorish characters similarly, in that both of them are ostracized for their uh, Moorish origins, right? Othello, of course, is uh, very heavily discriminated against because they don't believe that his conversion to Christianity is legitimate. Um, of course, the, the story also takes place in uh, medieval Italy, so in a time where it was both written and takes place in a time where religion was the dominant uh, way of viewing and judging and classifying others. Right. Now we, we've we managed to uh, find so many ways to consider others others. Yes, and, and keep in mind that this is even more pertinent here because more itself is never a term directed towards yourself. It is always a term directed to someone else, right. right? That is, by its nature, that's what the term was designed for. It doesn't describe a specific people. And that is essentially how I would sum up the idea of what more means. Is that traditionally, moro, as used in Spanish, as well as in uh, Portuguese and later in you know some other languages uh, around Europe, essentially means Muslim from Africa, typically. Okay. Um, and that could be any kind of Muslim from Africa. That could be a Muslim from Africa with a uh, skin tone that was tawny or dark, like dark brown, like black by modern standards, or pale. That could be anything. Um, in English, more not only refers to a Muslim from Africa, but a Muslim more generally. And even more generally than that, uh, 
by the early modern period, more had taken a sense of just meaning sort of anything foreign, right? Anything foreign, anything other, anything exotic. Right. So attempts to understand and uh, answer who are the Moors, or as more as is more often asked, what race are the Moors? Uh, because that is a question that people are always kicking around, and that seems to be the main context in which questions about the Moors are asked, is a kind of a fallacious one by its nature, I think, um, in that you are trying to ascribe a nonsensical colonial idea of biological race onto people who had not yet had that idea implanted in their minds. Right. And I mean, I think from a scientific standpoint, there's only one race, so uh, human. Um, so it, it's not even, yeah. but, but I understand what you're saying. That, that, you or know. even then, if, if you have to divide humanity into biological races, there are a hundred races, 99 of which are in East Africa and then everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the, I think it was your first episode or one of them that said that there were 38 different distinct uh, tribes, cultures, people, the, the, the pygmies, you know, it wasn't one tribe. It was, uh, it was uh, something like three dozen or whatever it was. Uh, no, and uh, they're not even necessarily related to each other. Uh, there's genetic, and this could lead into Fasimba because there's a lot of, uh, how can I, uh, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not the Fasimba represent a Malagasy expansion of uh, a pygmy culture, but uh, even the idea of a pygmy race or a pygmy people in general is, uh, is generally viewed as an outdated concept because it's not uncommon for certain pygmy peoples like the uh, like the Twat in Rwanda, to be more closely related to other nearby non-Pygmy peoples than to other Pygmy peoples. So, Yeah, the, the world is not a simple place. And, 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 no, no, nothing is ever simple and easy to understand. Everything has to be complicated all the time. That's right. Sadly. Or, yeah. well, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say sadly, yeah. uh, because that's part of the joy in life, right? Right. That, that's, that's, I mean, what would I do if I, if I wasn't doing a podcast exploring things that I didn't know very much about? I mean, that, 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 just be eating more pizza. Exactly. Which is something I know a lot about. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I do that anyways while figuring out other stuff. Oh, uh, multitasker. Show off. Ah, uh, yes. All right. So, so, the, so. Are we going to try to describe who the Moors are, or are we going to leave it at it's it's foolish to even try to because you're 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 taking a you're trying to put a descriptor on a people that that doesn't apply at all in any sort of objective way. So I wouldn't say it's foolish to try to describe what the Moor is, but I would say that it is foolish to try to assume that there is a Moorish people. Okay. Um, the way that I would define a Moor is uh, a European. Okay, let me let me think of a good way to phrase this. Um, that a Moor is the European understanding of Muslims from Africa is how I'd phrase it. And of course, there's the further nuances that it was used more generally as an exotic term to mean anyone who is foreign and interesting and. Uh, uh, other, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that you could adequately, like if you had to do a dictionary definition, more would be like uh, a, a term used by Europeans to describe Muslims from Africa. When was the Iberian invasion from North Africa? 
Uh, well, it's there's a few of them actually, uh, but the main one was in the seventh uh, century AD, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Um, so this was really just on the heels of sort of the Arabic, if it's even really Arab entirely, but let's just call the Arab invasion of North Africa. And I guess they just kept continuing along with their, you know, their, their, their new, uh, you know, assimilated army members or, you know, citizens. What, you know, I don't really know how, how it was set up. I know it was a caliphate, um, you know, the converts, whatever, but the, you know, so uh, I, I guess they just kept going. They 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 came over from uh, you know the Sinai and you know, in, in you know they in North Africa. You know, you know not in, overnight, it, but it was. I think it was pretty much done by the six hundreds. And I guess from there they said turned their attention north and said, "Well, oh, well, that's the shortest point. So let, let's let's go here." Yeah, there's there's a bit of a, a discrepancy between the two because uh, the conquest of uh, North Africa occurred under the direction of Khalif Umar, who was the, uh, or I can never pronounce that correctly because it uses a, a an Arabic sound which is not present in English, Almar. Uh, the Khalif Almar, uh, who was the third Khalif of the uh, Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphate, or Khalifat. Um, but yes, the, uh, and whereas the uh, uh, conquest of Iberia occurred under the uh, Umayyad, uh, Umayyad Khalifa, uh, after a whole list of complex events involving the, you know, uh, the reign of Khalif Ali uh, and uh, sectari- uh, the, the purported origins of Islamic uh, sectarian conflict during the Second Fitna and First Fitna. And, uh, uh, there's uh, too much to get into. Right, so, so even what I said it, is way too simplistic. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's a decent uh, summation. Uh, I I would say that the that the military campaigns of not only the conquest of Iberia and, but rather that the conquest of North Africa was not exactly one big sweeping military campaign. But I think that if you want to view it through the lens of momentum, that uh, you could view it that way, right? Where it's that the uh, Khalifat was able to, you know, uh, essentially for many different reasons, had the military momentum that was unmatched at the time to sweep in through North Africa and then continue upwards. Um, I think that's fair enough. Okay. Very good. Um, so the, 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 cons- the composition of those forces were probably, you know, what you would consider traditionally, you know, Levantine, uh, Persian, uh, Turkic, Arab, Semitic, uh, you know, Nord- you know, Horn of Africa, um, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of sub-Saharan Africans involved as well. Uh, so, it was, you know, so it was probably a, a very much a multi-ethnic, I'll use the word ethnic, not racial. I'm not even sure if that's exactly right, but um, group. Certainly. And there's actually some pretty good records of some tensions within the Khalifat's army uh, with uh, Amazigh or uh, Berber forces not always being willing to take orders from Arab commanders, um, as well as some outright mutinies. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, even beyond that, there is the uh, the issue that uh, more is a term that doesn't describe a particular time or place, that uh, 
you also have to take into account all the different demographic changes that occurred throughout North Africa uh, in the uh, medieval period. So uh, despite the fact that people like to arbitrarily divide Africa down a Saharan line, uh, many people from sub-Saharan Africa, as it's typically called, moved into uh, the Maghreb. Uh, many Maghrebis moved into uh, the Sahel, or south of the Sahara. Yeah, um, people move. Great deal of, people migrate. Yes. People migrate, and sometimes they even go back. Yes. <laughs> you know, so there, were, uh, there were many Europeans who converted to Islam and uh, ended up moving to North Africa. Uh, there were people uh, from Europe and North Africa who were enslaved by the others. There were people from uh, the Sahel who were enslaved. Uh, there were, you know, there's all these different reasons for why people would move. There's records of people from, uh, this is during a slightly later period, but during the early modern period, there are records of people from the Sahel uh, going and uh, speaking in Islamic uh, community centers and madras and uh, uh, universities, um, and vice versa. People from north of the Sahara moving down and speaking and teaching at uh, universities south of the Sahara. So even beyond just these demographic movements, there's a lot of uh, sort of nuances in who is uh, in who is who. There's uh, one of the uh, major leaders of a rebellion against a later uh, state, which claimed to be a caliphate called the Fati- uh, Fatimid Caliphate, was himself the product of a marriage between a North African Amazigh man and a woman from somewhere south of the Sahara. We don't know exactly where uh, because it's the Chronicles just list her as being from some dark-skinned people south of the Sahara. Um, and then, of course, I didn't even mention this, but you also have to take into account that uh, the people who are being described in question here, that is, uh, medieval Christians and medieval Muslims, did have their own conception of race that varied dramatically from how we view it today, where they viewed human beings as being the product of various... Uh, tribes descended from Noah, right? right? Mm-hmm. Where they viewed, and this didn't always align with skin tone. So both, uh, all people in Africa, so both light-skinned North Africans and dark-skinned Sub-Saharan Africans and anyone in between was viewed as being uh, a Hamite, right. right? People descended from the son of Ham, and that was used to justify a lot of subjugation, exploitation, and uh, other discrimination uh, by uh, people from areas external to Africa. Uh, They would say, like, uh, oh, well, of course we need to, uh, you know, have an Arab dynasty ruling over this area in North Africa because the Amazigh, they are Hamites, they are cursed, they they are just destined for subjugation. Now, what what was the curse of Ham? Why why was he um, considered the the, uh, dark sheep, so to speak? Uh, that's getting into a whole theological thing that I don't want to get into. Uh, the, the association between Africa and Ham to begin with is fallacious because it's based on a like a, a pretty erroneous folk etymology where people thought they thought that Ham's name, when translated into certain like Greek, sounded like Kush, and so they assumed like it, it was. It's weird. There's okay. nothing actually in the Bible to claim that dark-skinned people are all descended from Ham, or that Africans are all descended from Ham. Okay. It, it's, it, it, it was a weird thing that 
it was a weird folk etymology that coincidentally could be used to justify some pretty atrocious stuff, so it was. Gotcha. Um, I'm afraid to ask this now, but what is Cush? We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Upgraded kitchen, new patio deck, home office. Do more with your home this year with an Arundel Federal Savings Bank home equity loan and take advantage of your hard-earned equity. Enjoy fixed interest rates, fixed monthly payments, and up to a 15-year term. One loan, endless possibilities. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and apply online. Conditions apply. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS number 671636. Kush uh, being an antiquated term for uh, modern-day Sudan. Oh, okay. All and right. it was kind of just used sometimes to refer to any sort of dark-skinned people. Right, or, you know, uh, not not the noble Egyptians or, you know, but b below the noble Egyptians were the Kushites or whatever, whatever they called them. Okay. I, I, good enough for government work. I, I have it. I, um, I did a show way back when with a black Israelite, and... You know, I asked him some questions, and and he his response was basically, "Oh no, those are Hamites. We don't deal with Hamites." Um, and I, I don't know. I you know, I you know everything I thought that what I knew about Black Israelites was wrong. Um, oh yeah, no, it, they have a very confusing and uh, strange theology. Yes, and, <laughs> yeah, it's a, and, but it's you know it's sort of specific, and it, but it's you know. It, I don't know. I, I would tell people to listen to the show just a warning. The the audio is terrible. I even had an outside producer work on that one just by just by coincidence, but uh the, the gentleman it sounded like he was like on an old phone in a submarine and uh we couldn't remix it, but it's still uh still an interesting show, uh to check it out. It, it I mean it's a you know, it's a it's like you said, it's a very it's a very interesting Dogma, I don't want to say unique, because I truly have no idea. There's tons of dogmas out there. Um, anyway. It is pretty unique, I'd say. Yeah. Um, anyway. I, I, I say this not as an endorsement. There's really nothing else like it. Yeah. I get uh, uh, you. Well, one day when I one day when I wrap up this show and I've talked to every single denomination and sect and cult and group in the world, I'll, I'll be able to opine on that. But uh, so far, it's the most unique uh, that I have spoken to, but, uh, I, I, you Man, know, they used to harass me and my friends in undergrad to try to get us to talk to them. They, they do that at colleges a lot. That's their main, that's, that's a whole different side note though. Yeah. They, uh, their theology is that black people are like in America, African Americans and the, uh, well, not just in the United States, but in the Americas more generally people descended from slaves. Um, are the true Israelites and the people in Africa today are the evil Hamites who sold them. Yeah, and, and if I remember correctly, that included um, what, you know, what we'd roughly call Latin Americans, that they were also, uh, you know, black Israelites, um, though I don't know a single person from, you know, Central America or South America who would, you know, who I've ever met that's, that said the same. Anyway, they, it, yeah, there's it, all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting and strange, uh, ideology, but basically, basically no one in Africa is black. 
um, according to the black Israelites. So I, you know, I mean, that's that's a very simple way of well, my. They're report. black, but they're but black is only a color. So according to the black Israelites, I well, I mean, yeah, I guess that's, it, that's the term that they always used to tell me is that black is only a color. We are Israelites, and the Africans are all Hamites. I mean, I, I know that Cain had the mark, and he was cursed. I just don't, I just don't know what Ham did. But all right, Tedley, you said you want to get into it. It's a whole thing. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't be bothered. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't. We, we have other stuff to get into, so I don't want to go on another long rant it's, about it's religious right. theology. I, I, have, I have plenty of people to talk about uh, theology and, and interesting little nuggets and things that took lives of their own in, in theology. So that's cool. Um, all right. So I can't remember exactly where we left off in, in, in ours, other than we sort of came up with a definition that was good enough even though technically inaccurate for Moors. Um, I don't know if that ends the, the portion on Moors or if you had more to uh, impart to us. No, I'd say that just about covers it. Uh, I'd say that if people want to learn more about the people who they've called Moors, um, they should look into the Islamic cultures of North and West Africa. Uh, there's tons of them to look into. You could start with uh Kongum, or you could get into mali or you could get into uh all, all sorts of the ones in the north like the almohads and the uh almoravis and uh there's so much to get into like i don't even know where to tell people to start but just do it it's if you want to learn more about that do it it's fascinating well for a guy who says that you're not good with pronunciation you, you just rattled off some pretty hard words to pronounce so um, you know, maybe, so uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm decent with some pronunciation. Okay. Arabic, I generally do okay, but not perfect. Spanish, I do pretty well. Okay. Just because, like, I I've spoken Spanish for a long time. So. Well, let's let's get into um, gnomish, uh, possibly evil overlords, because I mean that's awesome. Oh, speaking in unpronounceability, yep, Madagascar. Oh my god. Uh, I love Madagascar, but these, the, the, well, I shouldn't say but. Part of the reason why I love Madagascar is because the names are so intricate. Um, typically 15 letters plus. Oh. Um, it's pretty I, sweet. Yeah, I wonder if that's because, I mean, Madagascar is a gigantic island, but I, I wonder if the, if when you're on an island and sort of a, a, a trapped ecosystem, that the way that you continue to, to distinguish different clans as clans turn and as families turn into clans and clans turn into tribes and cl- tribes turn into towns and towns turn into cities and cities turn into states that you just add extra syllables onto it to differentiate and maybe that's part of it well I, I, mostly when like uh when it comes to the long names it's mostly present among highlander people so the betsy leo and uh imerina or uh just made everything is like where they live but uh the imerina people are known for having very uh, lengthy names. And I think it's really cool because it's usually, at least what I've found, it's that they stand, like, they mean something very intricate and very specific. So, like, you know, uh, one of the names that I had a hard time pronouncing was uh, Andrea Mananitani, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a fun name to say. Yep. And it means something, oh, God. (laughs) Let me pull it up. I think I wrote in a podcast script what it actually means. Um, it is long. Um, 
Child of the Dolphin, Sun, and Sky Mother, and the Snake Around the World. That, that sort of deal, yeah. Um, oh, uh, well, I don't, I don't have that one, but I do have the name of a town, that, which is Ambohitran uh, Andrea uh, Nahari, which means the uh, village of keen submission to the king. Ooh. I believe is an okay if serviceable. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little redundant. King submission to the king, but okay. Is that well? There's a whole story behind that, uh, <laughs> where the, uh, the village uh, submitting to the king. There's a whole story behind how. Uh, or wait, oh, I, I apologize. Uh, that one, uh, I got them mixed up. That is not the village of submission to the king. That is the the village of where God lives. That is oh, okay. the village where God lives, basically. I hope uh, it's a nice village. A, the story is that Andrea Manlitani built two towns, and his brother got upset that he built one with a large wall because he thought that meant that there might be like issues, and so he asked him to get rid of that one, you know, the city where God lives, and build a new one called Village of Submission to the King. Ah, okay. Well, I don't know if God lived there or not, and I, I don't know if that king made a smart decision or not. I mean walls i think were useful in certain times in certain cultures but they might be especially useful for keeping out half-size demonic evil overlord dwarves with bad intentions so getting into what you're discussing there uh malagasy mythology features a people called the fasimba uh who are maybe one of the most interesting topics i've covered on the show personally i i liked covering them a lot because it's much like more, there's a lot of ambiguity in that it is almost certainly an exonym, for one thing. And also that it is a term with all sorts of connotations that may or may not be fair and that has varied a lot over time. Um, historically, among Malagasy Christians, the idea of Fasimba has been viewed somewhat negatively. That's where most of the stories of Fasimba being uh, dwarven, demonic, ugly creatures comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, that uh, Malgasy Christians would depict them quite negatively. I and see. most likely, uh, the most likely reproduction or sort of reconstruction of the timeline regarding Fasimba mythology goes that like, okay, so prior to the arrival of the ancestors of the Marina people, there were likely a group of people living in the highlands of Madagascar, right? Then those people interbred with the Merina, because that is a common thread in all of these stories. And eventually the Merina, uh, to some extent, kicked them out or killed them, depending on which version you believe. And that, those people are called the Fasimba, and are also simultaneously venerated for being very wise and powerful and having great magical powers. Um, but that brings into some of the contradictory elements of that, which is that these people who are viewed in the traditional Malgasy religion as being very wise and powerful people often pray at sites associated with Fasimba, especially in assistance in things like childbirth or starting a new business, um, are also portrayed quite negatively. Uh, so in the mythology, they are typically perceived as being uncivilized, that they have not figured out farming or metallurgy. They're described as using clay tools instead of metal ones, and uh, 
that they don't know how to butcher and consume cattle, and instead they live off of the milk of feral cattle, uh. and that they, uh, you know, that they're not doing anything right, basically. That they're not civilized. They're primitive people. Um, right. And they, they make a really big deal out of emphasizing this in the book that I'm referencing, that Santana Mi Andreana, uh, Antana Naribo, um, is that the people, the Fasimba, are... They don't honor their dead ancestors, which is like, uh, <gasps> yeah, it, 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 that's that's a really big deal in mm-hmm. Malagasy culture. Um, is that you must honor properly honor and uh, engage in the proper burial rites for your deceased ancestors. Uh, and the fact that the Fasimba were not doing that is a clear implication of their lack of character. Right? Yes, understood. I'm with you so far. Yeah, and the idea here is that these negative depictions of Fasimba, because they are also portrayed, should add this, as incredibly ugly. Ah, good. Um, they are short, um, and again, this isn't something that most people hopefully don't view it as ugly today, but by Merina beauty standards, were very colorist, and they saw dark skin as being ugly. So the Fasimba are uh, jet black, um, short, they have glowing red eyes, gigantic teeth, um, enormous mouths, and droopy ears, and they're, they're kind of like little, They there's some depictions of them that are still around in statuettes, and they look almost uh, imp-like. Um, that those depictions are weird, because there's random exceptions to it in Malagasy mythology. There's seemingly arbitrary exceptions where there will be Fazimba women who are described as being incredibly beautiful. Okay. Um, specifically, the sexy Fazimba are almost exclusively the ancestors of later Merina rulers. So this, <laughs> there's a pretty obvious reason for that. You know, yes, No one sure. wants to be like, oh, my mom's a Fazimba. Yeah, she was an ugly little dwarf creature, right? Like, right. you know... It's, uh, no, like, my, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was a Fasimba, but she was one of the hot ones. Right. right. Got it. Yeah. From the noble line. Yeah. And the the interesting thing about it is that a lot of people in uh, Imerina today do claim to have Fasimba heritage, and that it's more common to claim Fasimba heritage if you are of noble descent. Um, that... It, it's it's strange, right? Because you would think that, given how negatively they are portrayed in Malagasy legend, that there would you know be a reluctance to claim descent, but uh, from the people at the top, and that they would describe it to the people at the bottom. But no, uh, that's because Malagasy uh, hierarchy actually places a very big emphasis on land ownerships, particularly ancestral land ownership, where the basically the longer you can establish that your family has been on the land that you are working or having other people work, the more social privilege is awarded correspondingly. That's hardly unique. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, some people to this day are very proud of the fact that, you know, all my granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy worked on this same farm as I do. It's like that, but you know, socially applied. Right. So it would denote you greater uh, social privileges as well and social respect and prestige. The landed gentry, you know, the British Royal family, or for those of you who watch Yellowstone, the Dutton Yellowstone Ranch. Yeah, though it, it would be a little bit different in the case of the British, because I don't know too much about British history, but haven't the British monarchs, like, mostly been composed of foreigners? <laughs> 
I mean, it's like the, the current monarchs are German, right? Well, y- yes and no. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, the 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 Angles and the Saxons were both Germanic tribes. The, no, no, I, I don't mean like like I I mean isn't like I believe like the House Windsor is like directly. Yeah, descended ha- from like German immigrants in the 1700s, right? Yeah, Habsburgs. I mean, the, the George the Third didn't even speak English; he spoke German. Um, yeah, and then like there was William and Mary were Dutch. I want to say uh, at least one well, of them. English was. English history is not my forte. I know that there were French people who conquered England. Oh, for sure. The I mean, the Normans, and then you know, yeah. I mean, this is this is common everywhere. Um, but uh, I, back to the uh, the Fasimbi, I mean, how yeah, some well, of them... it's a little bit different with the with Malaga- uh, Madagascar because whereas in Britain it's more about, like, can you establish a direct ancestral line to this particular place? Like, it's more about, uh, like, it, it would be the equivalent of if someone took great pride of, like, my ancestors are uninterrupted Celts who have worked this land since before Roman times, right? Like, the longer back you can go, the better. Gotcha. Yeah, it grows with each generation. Your your social status, um, and of course, the the biggest social status you can get then is by claiming Fasimba heritage. Right, because it's a semi divine, and since you're not hideous and ugly with flaming red eyes and and droopy ears, and you're not you know half half the size of another person, you obviously came from the the rare beautiful Fasimbas. Yeah. So. In analyzing this, there was uh, the work of one particular uh, academic that influenced me a lot and has really influenced Malagasy studies a lot because uh, like his work has just been really tremendous in regard to Fasimba and more generally analyzing uh, the way that later um, European and Christian uh, narratives have strongly influenced uh, the way that... Uh, not only Fasimba, but other elements of Malagasy history are viewed. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to remember his first name, but his last name is Bird. Um, I'm forgetting his first name, but... Admiral. <laughs> Big. Admiral. Um, That's about the end of my, the birds I Gerald. know. Gerald. Gerald, okay. actually, not too far from Admiral. In terms of sound. Gerald, yeah, I just pulled up one of his JSTOR links. Um, Gerald Bird wrote a lot about uh, the Fasimba question, as it was called, in Malagasy history, where it's the question of, like, who actually are these people who are so important to Malagasy history? And in the case of Gerald Berg, I think he made a pretty compelling point that the modern negative portrayals of Fasimba are mostly associated with an attempt by Christian missionaries to undermine more traditional ancestral cults, where the people venerated and respected Fasimba, who were not necessarily viewed as demonic or short or impish, but were just rather viewed as normal ancestral people. And that they later added these elements to say, no, you shouldn't worship these people. These Fasimba are demonic. They were ugly. Don't don't worship them, right? So they turned uh, the angels into demons. I guess you could say that. No, not even angels, just like people. People. Okay, so, so these are not supernatural beings necessarily. They're, they're not of the earth or from the sky, no aliens involved or no gods intermingling with man. This is, this is, this was just a, uh, I guess the, the old one, so to speak, who lived on the Island, uh, earliest or, or at least had the, uh, were in power at some point in the long lost past. 
Yes, that's, that's Berg's theory, and one that I think is pretty compelling is that these stories are simply modifications of an older ancestral, uh, an older tradition of ancestral worship that we do know existed and still exists within Madagascar. Um, and I think he makes a pretty compelling case. But that does open up more interesting questions, such as, okay, if the Fasimba were just normal people, who were they? Yeah, right? and where are they now? Yeah, and there is a bit of debate on both of those questions, um, because it varies a lot depending on retellings of oral traditions and uh, on analysis as well as archaeological evidence. Um, for a long time, uh, European scholars assumed that the Fasimba were Africans, particularly Africans of what they called the pygmy race. Mm -hmm. um, there's some reason to doubt that because a the idea like we mentioned earlier the idea of a pygmy race is kind of defunct in that the various peoples who have short stature throughout africa are not necessarily related to each other right and that it is most likely a an, an environmental adaptation that came out relatively recently among various different people multiple times um there's also the fact that there's very little uh, linguistic evidence for any sort of non-Austronesian presence, because most Malagasy people are just descended from a mixture of Bantu peoples from mainland Africa and Austronesian peoples from Indonesia. Um, and so there's very little evidence of any sort of non-Austronesian presence in Highland Madagascar prior to uh, the uh, 15th century. <coughs> We know that because the place names are almost exclusively Austronesian, and place names are usually a very good indicator of, well, just about anything. So, yeah. in the context of the United States, uh, you know, even though uh, the indigenous inhabitants were subjugated and uh, forcefully assimilated or exterminated in some cases by the more dominant Anglo American culture, uh, you still have a lot of place names of native origin. Sure. Right. Um, same with Mexico, right? Or uh, even in Britain, you know, in, in England, there's plenty of Celtic place names, even though, you know, uh, culturally the Celts are conquered, right? Yep. There's plenty of uh, Siberian place names in Eastern Russia. There's, you know, uh, plenty of... As a local community bank, we understand the needs of small businesses like schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations. That's why so many of them choose Arundel Federal as their Maryland bank of choice, a local bank with roots in the neighborhood that doesn't require appointments to be seen. Doing good for the businesses and people in our communities is how we've been doing business since 1906. Visit us at ArundelFederal.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Is your new year still falling flat? Do you avoid stairs with multiple steps? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy or low E, but there's a cure. Now through February 16th, join Planet Fitness for just $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. With clean, spacious clubs and tons of equipment, you can boost your energy after just one workout. Leave low E behind and find your big fitness energy at Planet Fitness. Join in the free PF app for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel anytime. Deal ends Thursday, February 16th. See Home Club for details. Place names deriving from Amazigh in North Africa, even in places that have since been subjugated by the more dominant Arab culture. Oh, I just and thought so, of a great exonym, Aztec. Well, a Aztec is uh, a bit... Uh, I would have to ask my friend, who is a 
scholar of Mesoamerica, but I believe Aztec is an endonym, more generally to refer to a group of five different peoples who came together in an alliance. It's just not necessarily an ethnic term. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to ask him about it, though. Okay. Well, not maybe it's not such a great one, but all right. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, that's not really my area, but I, I, but I believe I remember him saying something about how people sometimes try to say Aztec is an illegitimate term, and he says it's not, and... Well, I, my, you know, this is not my expertise, but my understanding is that it was it was pronouncing like Mexica or Mexiza, which is where Mexico comes from. And, and oh, Mexica. That's yeah. uh, that was one of the groups within the alliance. Okay, so the it's largest, sort of, most dominant one, but only one of the groups within the alliance. Okay, doke. Um, all right. It's interesting you said some came from Indonesia because. Uh, listen, I have no idea what the what the timelines here because I'm not an anthropologist, and even though I read those articles and whatever, I you know instantly forget about as you know twenty times more than I retain. But in the South Pacific, in the in, you know in the Philippines, and I think in Malaysia, I'm not sure about the in, Indonesia, but it's, uh, you know it stands to be likely that there are two distinct Homo sapiens, which were they're calling Hobbit people there, but there were two different kinds. Like I think one was called Homo florensis. And then there's another homo something else. Uh, and, you know, it's not that far. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, there was no Indonesia then. It was, you know, whatever they called it, the world looked different and whatever. But I mm-hmm. I, I wonder if maybe there's something to that. I mean, I, I, I recognize that that is no more scientific than saying, ah, probably just pygmies. Um, you know, just because there were short people one place. But, you know, uh, I'm not a scientist. So, you know, that's what I do. Well, I, I mean, I'm... Uh, again, uh, our like uh, Indonesian paleontology is not my thing. But if I'm not mistaken, didn't those people like go extinct like a really, really long time ago? I'm really not sure. I mean, you could be a hundred percent right. Yeah. I mean, drawing drawing a connection between Fasimba and a long gone uh, hominid seems difficult to substantiate. Right. Um, so back to aliens, plus right? The uh, the people. Uh, Homo florensis, they are were, I believe, from the archipelago, in, which includes the island of Flores, which is in southern Indonesia. Whereas the anthropological and more generally archaeological and linguistic evidence seems to support that Malagasy originated in Borneo, which is that kind of thick circular island, circular-ish island. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the largest Indonesian island, um, particularly that they were Dayak, which is the pre-Malay people from that island. Oh, of course I forgot that. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's just an interesting... Uh, no, I'm glad that you know all this stuff. I mean, I you know, I, you do the history of, uh, of Africa. I didn't, I didn't know that, that if I spit out something like that, that you'd actually, you know, uh, know where the island of Flores was and, you know, Malay and all of this stuff. It's great. It's... it's, it's uh, well, I, I try to have, like, my focus is in Africa, but I try to have a decently comprehensive view of most places. Excellent. Great. I mean, I don't know any anywhere near the same detail. I can't tell you anything about... I, I don't think I know the name of a single monarch from Indonesia, for example. Okay. Like in history. King I, Indo. I, I just don't... I can't think I... Uh, I can't think I do. I, I, <laughs> I think I played like Civ Five when I was a kid. Right. And so I probably like 
if you pressed me, I'd probably be able to remember the name of the monarch from Civ Five, but like that's it. Yeah, I, I don't really know that much about Indonesia. I do know a lot about Madagascar, though. So I think his name was Joe. But anyway, so yeah, so back to Madagascar. Yeah. I forget about my wacky theory. Um, so what does the archaeology anthropology lead us to believe are the possibilities of uh, these folks? These uh, these. Short people who got a, a bad rap probably by Jesuits and other Christian missionaries. So there's two theories that I personally think are very strong. Um, there's one that I think is a bit less strong. Uh, the one I think is a bit less strong is that the uh, people who would later be known as Fasimba were the descendants of a group of settlers from mainland Africa, particularly pre-Bantu peoples. Um, most likely either uh, Khoisan-speaking peoples, people who spoke a language in the Khoisan family, or people who spoke languages in the Austro- or uh, Afro-Asiatic family. Uh, uh, there's... I don't think there's much to support that because there's no place names, there's very little linguistic evidence for that. That's the big thing, is the lack of place names. Because, okay. uh, like I said, with Native Americans, for example, there's there's always place names. Whenever one group gets conquered and assimilated by another, not many things get left behind, but place names almost certainly do. Gotcha. Um, place names are unusually resilient in terms of uh, cultural change. Right. Um, that said, one theory that I, I don't personally think it's the strongest, but I do take it seriously, is that the Fasimba might be the remnants of a hunter-gatherer culture that we know existed on Madagascar at one point prior to Austronesian migration. So this group, um, we don't know much about them, but there is some fossil, or sub, not fossil, uh, sub-fossil evidence and some uh, archaeological evidence to show that human beings likely did live on Madagascar for a time between 500 BC and 300 AD. Though the evidence for these people, though it's present, is quite rare, which is generally an indication that they were most likely either not very numerous or were transient, as in that they may have not even lived on the island all the time, that they might have gone back and forth between the mainland, or they moved around various parts of the island nomadically. And so this, uh, this population, to the extent that it existed on Madagascar, could have established itself, and that the Fasimba were the remnants of this culture who were still there when the Austronesians showed up. Which is uh, possible, I suppose. Um, I do think that the theory is compelling because, A, we don't really know anything about the culture uh, that was there before, except that they were probably hunter-gatherers, which is what the Fasimba were supposed to be, according to Malgasy legend, but I'll get into that in a little bit, too, because um, that might not be true. But uh, that means that if, they, if this is true, and the Fasimba were their ancestors, then we wouldn't really know what archaeological or linguistic evidence, or, well, we know archaeological, but we wouldn't know what linguistic evidence to look for in place names. Right. So, yeah, that remains a, you know, promising idea, right? Is that, you know, sure, there was another group of people there who we don't know about, and so we don't know what to look for. Right. There's, um, there's also theory number three, which is that they were monsters, and there's theory number four that they were aliens. Yeah, and then, so after those two equally plausible theories... Right. Um, we come to theory number five, which is the one that I personally find to be the most valid, which is that they were likely just 
waves from an earlier Austronesian migration. Um, the place names being exclusively Austronesian seems to support that. The lack of uh, any uh, otherwise unexplainable linguistic stratum existing in Malagasy today explains that. Um, there's also a lot of archaeological evidence that shows that the portrayal of Fasimba as hunter-gatherers is almost certainly not true. There's a lot of archaeological evidence for early rice farming uh, at a time when the Fasimba were supposed to be not farming rice, gotcha. and they're supposed to be uh, simple hunter-gatherers. There's some pretty good evidence of larger semi-urban settlements, too, uh, which seems unlikely for these people who are depicted in the legends as being, like, you know, uh, simple and primitive, right? Um, there's also... Uh, Perhaps most crucially, there's evidence for iron metallurgy. Uh, so this idea that they were all using uh, clay tools and that they had never discovered how to do metallurgy is almost certainly not true. Um, so that is the uh, interesting thing there. And the Austronesian theory doesn't necessarily explain those latter things, but it does show that you know we don't necessarily need to take the legends at their word, that we can and should view them kind of critically. Well, they, right? they othered them by calling them savages, basically. And they, they, they didn't know anything. So even though, I mean, you know, we, you know, how, how old were, I mean, I'm much older than you, but how, how old were you when you learned that numbers were Arabic and that almost every culture in the world knew, uh, you know, about the processions of the stars and that the earth was not the center of the universe while, you know, Europe was still, you know, burning people over stuff like that. Um, you know, and it'd be because, you know, the, the, we were, we still had the remnants of that kind of othering that the, you know, everything good had to come from Europe and the enlightenment and the Renaissance. Meanwhile, you know, the, 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 the Maya and the Aztecs and the Chinese and the Persians and, and pretty much everyone else, you know, had already mapped out, you know, the, the, the path of Uranus. They, they, they knew when Halley's Comet was coming. I mean, they had calendars going for, you know, thousands of years, uh, accurately. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, wh why not, you know, people in Madagascar do that to, uh, you know, they take over and they diminish the accomplishments of those that uh, came before them who, you know, probably didn't disappear overnight. It, you know, it's probably some sort of, you know, combination of everywhere else, assimilation, killing, disease, whatever. Yeah, it's, uh, honestly, like with anything else, historically, there's a lot of, variation that goes into it. And it's really hard to uh, determine what causes what, what is the result of what, and, you know, uh, perhaps most importantly, like, was the othering of the Vazimba something that occurred before Christianization or afterwards? Uh, it's really hard to tell because, uh, and I didn't mention this, that document that I mentioned earlier, the Tantara, which is uh, one of the best recorded versions of the Pasimba legend, was itself written by a Christian missionary. Ah. So the idea that, you know, that the version of the Fasimba that we are getting is a, an untainted original Magasi legend free of outside influence is just not true. Right. And so the idea that, you know, they could have been sort of othered and uh, viewed as a, you know, sort of painted negatively by Christian missionaries who wanted to challenge their importance within Malagasy traditional religion, it just, it makes sense. It aligns best, and it also aligns well with later confirmed Malagasy history, which shows ideological and social tensions between Christians and non-Christians on the island. Regardless, I do have to leave soon, but uh, do you have anything you want to say before we wrap up? 
Uh, just one quick question. Is there any evidence to support the people from, I think you said, Austro-Indonesian, uh, that they were short of stature compared to the their contemporaries on Madagascar at the time? So, because you say that, because uh, I, I should clarify, uh, the mainline theory is that the, the people in Austronesia were likely the first people to land on Madagascar. So, their contemporaries in Madagascar would have most likely been non-existent. Okay, well, the the, the migrants then from the mainland were they? Is there like a, a noticeable average height difference that would cause this? You know, uh, you know, they're half men, or or that was just part of the othering of them later on. I don't. Not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, I think that generally East Africans are a little bit taller than Indonesians today, but yeah. we don't know that that was necessarily true back then. And also the legends originate from the more uh, Indonesian-descended cultures themselves. So Right. And it's not like one group was six feet tall and the others were three foot six. It's, so it's... Uh, all right. There you go. Um, all right. So no aliens, no monsters. We can't rule those things out, but it seems unlikely. But it's still something that's a mystery that, that, that has not yet been solved, and maybe one day it, it is will. Possible. It is possible. I am thoroughly surprised that Ancient Aliens has not found out about Fasimba yet. All right, well, because I finally I beat them. About this, I was like, God, if, if if the History Channel ever gets their hands on this, ooh, they're gonna have like three specials about it. <laughs> I, I I finally beat them to something. There you go. I've I've arrived. Thank yeah. you, Andy. Take that, History Channel. That's right. That's right. I'm going to find that guy with it says, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. I mean, he's my hero, of course. Um, all right. Well, tell the folks where they can find... Well, first, I should thank you for giving us an education on the Moors, and that actually it's a complete misnomer of a term, but uh, just for the lack of brevity or for the sake of brevity to say, you know, uh, education about the, the Moors and some of the history in the timeline, and then going into the fascinating story of the... Fasimba and what they, the many things that they might be, a little disappointed that they're not actually monsters that came out of a volcano or, or you know, uh, you know, demigods or whatever, but, uh, you know, such as such life. And that, that's not really your lane anyway. Um, so where can folks find you? How can they support you? Uh, do you have any projects other than the history of Africa? Not that that's not enough. Um, yeah. Well, that's all I'm doing right now. You can find the History of Africa podcast or on Twitter at of Africa, so H-I-S-T of Africa, and uh, check me out. I do a lot of stuff. If you like African history, you'll like the show, because that's all that the show's about. It's all about African history. So if you want some of that, you know where to find it. There you go. Excellent show. I listen to it every week, except when he's between seasons, and then, of course, there's nothing to listen to there. Um, yes. So, unless you're a Patreon, and then he has uh, supplemental episodes as well. Um, so, there you go. So, check that out. And if you have a few extra bucks, become a Patreon, and you'll get that extra content. But uh, I, I think he's actually the only History of Africa podcast, or at least he was when he started. There may be others that followed since, but he's been doing that, what, four years? Um, yeah, I was the only one when I started. I think that there, there's another one called It's a Continent, which is fine. Like, the show's good. They don't really focus on pre-colonial African history, though, which is what I focus on. So there's a bit of a difference. If you want to know more about, like, you know, Kenya's struggle for independence or the impact of oil economies on modern Africa, that's probably your thing more than my show. But if you want to know more about Africa before colonialism, uh, then that is uh, more of my speed. Well, nobody has to um, choose. It's a and <laughs> there, there also were, like, there's, like, one weird show that came out, like, a few years before I did, 
where the guy like said that it was about African history, but if you check what it's been about for like the last four years, it's all about like American politics. So. Oh, okay, all right. Well, there you go. So if you want an authentic history of Africa, um, going back in in some cases thousands of years, uh, and these your guy, that's your show. Um, and, uh, and of course, I, uh, as any longtime listener of this show knows, I've had on folks from, uh, legendary tales of, of Africa and, uh, around the fire. So, you know, some of the, uh, Oh yes, they're great. Yeah. They're great. I, lo- I love those guys. They're awesome. Yep. Yeah, I've had them both on, um, actually, uh, the folk- legendary as they always say, right. The, <laughs> the folks from legendary were on twice because they also do the Asian tapestry. So they did, uh, Goosebumps in part of my uh, Halloween month spooky stuff. One from African spooky stuff, and one from Asian spooky stuff. The Asian tapestry and the legend of Africa, and then around the fire was probably about a year. Ago. But uh, um, yeah, so you can check those stuff also. So anyway, I thank you once again. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, and check us out next week. We'll have another episode of Garden of Doom.
तेरा ही नाम होगा जो कुछ पावे झोली भर ले तेरा ही काम होगा Thinking of switching banks and looking for one that is friendly, takes the time to get to know you and is invested in the community? Then it's time you met the folks at Arundel Federal Savings Bank, your hometown community bank. From first homes to refinancing and car loans to checking accounts, we've been helping local residents and their families with their financial needs since 1906. Visit us at arundelfederal.com. After all these years, it's no wonder we treat you like family. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 671636. Is your new year still falling flat? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy. But Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment in our clean and spacious clubs for $1 down and $10 a month. No commitment. Cancel anytime. Deal ends February 16th. See Home Club for details.